1: Welcome back to the podcast where we know plenty of things about tennis, but no, we don't know what Stefano Tsitsipas is on about about 50% of the time. This is Tennis Unfiltered.
0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff.
1: I'm James Gray of iNews Dakota and the iNewspaper. I've got George Belshaw and Calvin Betton with me. Calvin, you're savoring the last few days of uh, Barnsley before you're you're off on tour. Is that right?
2: Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, I don't know if tour's is the right word. It's uh, <laughs> two weeks in, two weeks in London, then one week in somewhere in Europe. Um, but you know,
1: I mean, I'm sure there's lots of home comforts in Barnsley that you, you you're clinging on to.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, loads. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it'd be good. i am not um, it's been a few weeks since I've been on the road, actually, so I'm ready to go again. Um, ready for a long, long clay season.
1: George, you're just back off the road, sunny sights of Dublin, was it? Well, uh, I thought it
3: was only appropriate for me to visit uh, our number one fan base. At the minute, so I had to jet across, I not to steal your thunder of announcing this, James. So I mean, I wasn't.
1: I wasn't planning a big announcement, but it is exciting. <laughs> uh, thank you to all our Irish listeners, uh, because you have made us the number one tennis podcast in Ireland. Um, now, I've no doubt that's partly to do with the fact that the good people over at the tennis podcast had an illness last week and didn't do a podcast. Uh, <laughs> but you know, we're happy to rush into the vacuum where. Where there is space for for people to listen to tennis, so thank you very much to all our Irish uh, listeners, Sláinte. Um It's yeah, we we'll, I I don't know if we've ever talked about any Irish tennis, although I did briefly the other day think about interviewing the uh, Irish number one, but maybe, maybe that's what we'll do as as a celebration of our Irish listeners, we'll try and get the uh, Irish number one on because um, I think he is playing in Nottingham this week, off the top of my head. Anyway, thanks very much. Uh, Thank you as well to everyone who voted for us in the Sports Podcast Awards. Um, We came third, which is a mighty achievement given it's our first year entering. Um, And uh, I'm told that Dan Kiernan was uh, excellent in his marketing programme. And he also does an excellent podcast, which helps as well. Control the Controllables is his podcast, which won. Uh, Tennis Weekly came second. Well done, chaps and chapesses and uh yeah we came third so next year we will be winning that's what i've decided that's going to be in our uh, <laughs> our goals so just so you all know like george calvin you the listener we will be winning uh so that's that's just early warning that this is the 2024 best tennis podcast
3: Will that go down with our usual
1: failed predictions? (laughs) (laughs) Along with Carlos Alcraz's 37 Grand Slam titles and Dominic teams second. Um, But anyway, more of him later. Uh, We're going to start, as has become our sort of habit now, with your questions, uh, because people seem to be enjoying that and uh, it gives us an easy way into the podcast. Uh, It means sometimes that you might have to wait until... 45 minutes in for all the big tennis news, but uh, I think people are okay with that. So we'll start with Chris Thornton on Twitter, who says, I know it's not new, but does legal on-court coaching favour younger players who may be more fleet of foot, but less experienced problem solvers compared to their potentially more experienced opponents, who might not be the athletes they once were, but greater problem solvers? Uh, Calvin, this seems like like one for you as the uh, resident tennis coach. I mean, I, I think I'm right in saying that you've generally said you're not sure how much impact on court coaching can really have, anyway.
2: Um, no, I think it can have some impact, but I don't know. I think it's negligible, and it's and it's it varies match to match as well. I think what people always think when they when when we say we're we're going to allow on court coaching is that coaches just the idea that coaches are just better. Have better tennis brains than players which is a massive fallacy anyway that that coaches see things that players don't see and so they can just tell them the solution to this match which absolutely isn't the case it might be a case that in certain matches a players a player hasn't noticed something that a coach has noticed it may be vice versa than that but um the idea that i'm never i I never understood the idea that we shouldn't have on court coaching because players have the thing with tennis is players problem solve was always just a complete nonsense because they would still problem solve and everyone athletes in other sports problem solve as well. It was just some exceptionalism. But to answer the question, I would say that yeah, it's probably not far from the truth to saying that to say that inexperienced players would maybe gain a little bit more than um than older players just because, you know. A coach is an extra, an extra voice for them to listen to, and might be able to calm them down if the pressure's on, or, or something like that, or tell them when to turn the heat up in, in certain matches. But, um, whereas an experienced player would would already know those type of things. But um, yeah, I don't know whether that answers the question or not.
3: I've got a bit of a, a follow up, Calvin. How often, when you kind of prepare for a match, should you say to your players oh, this is the best place player maybe this is a little bit in doubles because I suppose you've got those kind of those plays you're going through but how often have you actually ended up kind of surprised by then what happens at the other on the other side of the net and you think oh god the plan's just gone completely out the window or is it just more the case of you know you always stick with the plan that's the right way to do it you know players aren't going
2: to change that much it's just about how you kind of execute it um yeah loads Um, um, plenty of times. No, um, I think in doubles, it's a bit different because we have a a double system. We have a tactical sort of, you can have basically when you hear top people talk about strategy and tactics, tactics would be the system, the framework of what you always adhere to. Um, this, this is how you play. This is the system that you play, whereas strategy would be what you're planning for that particular opponent on the day, um, so the, the the tactics, so that the, the system, the overall tactical system, would stay the same all the time. That's what you would try and do, and then you would have a strategy of what you how you're going to play that type of player on a day. So the system would never change. The strategy sometimes maybe your opponent would do things that you don't think are going to happen. You 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 might change the strategy. You would never change the system. You would never change the the tactic the tactical system. Because especially in, in with the British double system that we play, we're playing, it's, it's, it's a numbers game, it's a percentage game. We're saying, right, if we do this, we're going to win 52% of the points and that, that is enough to win you a tennis match. And you kind of give, accept that you're also going to lose 48% of the points and the key is to lose them, the inconsequential points and that the pressure plus the system means that you win those big points.
1: Has the fact that on-court coaching is now basically all bets are off and you can do what you want, has, has that made you sort of um reevaluate your, your on-court attitude? I mean, it, I, I know we've said before that coaching goes on whether it's allowed or not, but have you thought about how much coaching you would like to do during a match or, or maybe it won't change how you approach it?
2: I'll tell you how it's changed for me. It's 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 a bit different because now you're allowed to do it you kind of feel i don't think pressure is the right word i don't feel pressure to come up with something but when when you weren't allowed to do it i would just do it anyway and if i thought there was and if i thought there was something that needed saying to the player and i could get that message across then i would just say it whereas now you feel like because you can do it you feel like and and i don't do this but there's an urge to do it you feel like i've got to say something now whereas when it wasn't allowed if you didn't if you didn't have anything to say, you just wouldn't say anything. Mm. But now because it's there, there's a need to almost say something to say something for definite. And I've always found that strange with team competitions when I've when I've captained those because in generally like County Cup and that type of thing, you you've always been allowed to uh, on court coach. And what what you'd often find players doing, especially if they're not particularly experienced, is if they've lost the set, they'd look at you to change the match for them. And they'd go, like, well, what do I have to do here then? And it's not always you know, it's it's usually tennis matches decided by who's who's playing better on the day. Like there's not always a tactical solution that you can go, oh actually you've you've not been trying this. And um, you know, you might want to start trying to do this. Um so the strangest thing as well that I've that I all I've found really strange with the on court coaching thing, because I don't know whether everyone knows this, but you can only coach from the actual player's box. So you have to sit in the player's box which is always on the side of the court and the side of the court is the worst position to see the tactical plan of it so you can't it's a bit strange like that i always prefer to watch matches from behind the court if possible mm. but you can't coach from behind the court <laughs> um, so, so the,
1: the only court i can think of where that's different is susan long um, at Roland Garros, which is where the players' box is actually directly behind the court. Right, that's okay. the only one. It's but but you're right. I mean, it's very rare. It's, it's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Um, maybe Court Three at yeah. Wimbledon. I think they're behind, but that's it.
3: So when Patrick yeah. and Cash on they're on their deep French Open run this year, Kelvin. You yeah have that's it. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, so what I mean, what what you can do, what I've done a couple of times is I've just gone and stood behind the court for when the The points have been played, and then when, because you can only obviously coach at one when the players are at one side as well. Hmm. Um, So I've just gone and sat back down, but then players don't often want to see that. You know, they don't want to see coach moving back up and down and that kind of thing. So they want like some sort of, you know, some sort of clarity and the coach just to be there giving encouragement and that kind of thing. Um, Hmm. But yeah.
1: It's interesting. I wonder whether like it will change over time what players want from their box as well, because like. There's some players who basically just want to use their box as a sort of verbal punch bag. I mean, I'm thinking of Andy Murray specifically, who I don't think wants his box to say anything in return, other than just, like, standing up and clapping sometimes. Um, and similarly, Nick Kyrgios to an even greater extent. I can't ever imagine Andy Murray being like, what What should I do? And, and actually wanting a response.
2: I'm I'm, t- I'm told that it, that's not the case. I'm told it's the opposite from that, that what actually winds Andy up is just empty sort of white noise, noise encouragement. Oh, really? Like, like clapping and going, yeah, let's go now, this one, this one. And I don't think the guys who are there in with him now do that, but it's certainly been the case in the past. I think what he does want and what gets his respect is if you tell him something that, that could help him win a match that he hasn't seen. The difficulty is, is that, He's one of the top four or five in-match problem solvers that we've ever seen. So the likelihood of you as a coach seeing something that he hasn't is pretty slim. And yeah. also, it's also you know it, it, there's it's an art to it. And I'm not saying by any stretch that I'm perfect on this, but also what you you know what you don't want to be doing, and what I'm always wary of doing is you don't want that white noise either in coaching sessions or on the court you don't want to be constantly going yeah this one here we go come on now let's go let's go let's go here we go because it just turns into white noise and if it can sometimes wind players up they don't want that just just battering in their ear all the time but at the same time you don't just want to be sat there doing nothing so it's about when you you use that injection of talk or noise at the best possible moments
1: Do you think, George, as a viewer, just to kind of broaden this out a little bit, like the problem-solving thing, like let's say, for the sake of argument, as Chris posits, that on-court coaching does favour younger players because they can't problem-solve in the same way that older players do. Like, does that make a difference? Like, does it change the spectacle? Just because, I don't know, just because Lorenzo Mazzetti's been told by his coach to hit it more to... Andy Murray's backhand because his forehand's <laughs> really good. That, like, you know, like,
3: I, I, I mean, I kind of agree with Calvin in the sense that I, I can't remember too many interactions I've seen with a coach and a player where they've really said something that's like dramatically surprised me, and then I've seen within five minutes what this coach has said that, oh shit, they were totally right. They've just flipped, flipped the match on its head. And it's also quite. I think it's quite hard to like get that across in that sort of time frame they have um there was an example years ago um I try to remember was it andrescu against kerber where a coach okay. came on and gave a really good kind of minute and a half speech and some tactical stuff and i remember watching that being like oh fucking hell, this was really really interesting really good and it changed it felt like it changed the course of the match but i can't remember too many other examples where i've really thought that slight injection was was kind of the key key difference. Um, but that's not to say it couldn't get there. And I think the other side of this is because this is more of a new thing, coaches will probably develop this side of their game as well. And they'll possibly come up with better ways of thinking, how can we influence a match? And there might even be a kind of new generation of coach where players, because of that in-game analysis and ability to give out Useful strategic things might you know suddenly you might get a, a real reputation for being one of the greatest tacticians on the tour um you know rather than just a really good coach who could do excellent stuff on the court prepare you well for a match you know can they actually directly influence matches will people start getting that reputation uh people like Muratoglu probably think he's someone who's like that you know he he feels that you know he's always argued for on-court coaching because he thinks you know it will be an interesting thing where you'll see top level coaches kind of showing why they're top level coaches they might actually strip out some of the more uh bullshitter coaches in the game <laughs> if you like you know now that we can all see it be like oh chatting
2: complete nonsense um you know, i'm not saying
3: i am um... who- too many there but who
2: knows i wouldn't think that he'd want it if it was going to strip out the bullshit coaches (laughs) (laughs) um um, i'd say a couple of things about it um one is that like the the idea that when i've heard criticism of it that that coaches are these like i said are these tactical geniuses it's been around in the women's game for a while now and i have to say that 95 percent of the in the the on-court coaching that i've seen from the women's game which does have the the top 100 of the women's game does have the worst standard of coaching of all tennis but the, the 95% of the interactions i've seen from the from coaches coming on the women's game have been absolute bullshit so um i i don't think that's going to help many players um and again the idea that it comes back to this idea that coaching is just telling players what to do and it's just that's not what coaching is it it can be anything it can be some feedback some encouragement that you can go you know I think you're hitting your forehand great out there. Or I, I love how you're hitting a little bit of extra spin on the forehand today. And they might not have noticed that and think, right, okay, that's what I'm doing well. It's not just coming on and going, right, when he goes here, you go there, then you're going to move here and then hit this winner mm-hmm. there. That, that's that's about 3% of what coaching is. So the idea that that's what, what needs doing or that's what you will see is – is not based in reality and the idea that and what you also get as well is and i've seen this a few times with with the commentators when the 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 coach will come on and say something and you can hear what they're saying and the coach will go that's just great coaching that's great advice when we don't know that it's only great coaching if it helps them win the match what what they mean is what 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 pundits can sometimes say commentators can mean i found that interesting what they said (laughs) but that's different from that's effective coaching
3: the, the other example that has just popped into my head that has been really interesting, and this is probably from a broader, that is interesting side of things, but um, it's actually the Labour Cup. There's been some amazing interactions with kind of Rafa and Roger and you know Novak and Roger, where they've, and again, Calvin will probably said this isn't great coaching, but if we're talking about it from a very broadcast interest perspective, hearing people who are that knowledgeable, who are some of the best problem solvers in the sport, kind of advising another
2: Great yeah, but that, that's that, that, that's that is, that is what I'm kind of saying though, and you know, Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer, probably the two best tennis players of all time, or two of the best three. Gavin, forbid that we get a load of crocodiles winning already. <laughs> but um, they don't. Coaching is it's knowledge of tennis, and it's also knowledge how to communicate, knowledge how people learn, how people intake information. And there was one match. I forget who was playing it. It wasn't one of those two. It was one of the other guys, maybe like Zverev or Sitipas or something. And at the change of ends, both of them came down, and they were both in his ear all the time. And and the commentators were like, "Oh, this is fantastic, isn't it?" And I was like <laughs> watching it, thinking, "I guarantee you that he hasn't heard any of that because they're they're just they're both just rabbiting." And you know, Roger Federer and Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal have have forgotten more about tennis in a day than I've known in my entire life. But I don't know if they really. Taken into account how people take in information and when it's useful, when it needs you, you. know, it's like what you want. What what you want on the tennis court? I'll tell you now. What you want as an on as a player from an on court coach is you want short, simple, sharp messaging. You want two or three sentences that you can take into the next game. You don't want Rafa Nadal giving you three minutes or one and a half minutes of a monologue, and then Roger Federer doing the same thing at the same time
3: the the thing yeah i i, th- I think you make is a really, really interesting point the things i do slightly wonder uh and i sort of think about this with kind of lendal in murray's box and kind of the appearance he's kind of had over the year is that if there's something just about it's not even so much what they're saying it's just who's saying it you know
0: yeah, is is Lendl,
3: yeah. Lendl's kind of impact, the fact he just was there and Andy respected him so much, he didn't need to say much very often, if oh. at all, but just that kind of feeling. And I wonder if Federer and Nadal would kind of, you know, I have to listen to them because they're so bloody good, you know, even if it's not necessarily the most effective coaching, just having them say something I might take from that.
2: oh it's, it's capital. It's, it's, it's basically cap- coaching capital and, and capital in the game that you've got and you've earned through that. And that's why so many of these guys, we have these super coaches, but what they're saying might not be you know an an unknown coach might be one of the best coaches we've ever seen and give great information but if he's giving that advice to say Novak Djokovic he's going to think, why should I listen to you I don't even know who you are but if say John McEnroe says it then he might think I'll tell you what you know Johnny Martin knew a bit about tennis but it (laughs) might just be it might be that he's talking absolute shit about tennis but he's more likely to listen to it and that's why it's so difficult, for, co- it's why it's so difficult for, p- for players who haven't come through as coaches, uh, have, have, who haven't played, sorry, to break through as coaches at the top of the men's game because they just seem to not trust them. That unless what you find is the unknown guys, they, they seem to be trusted by the player if they've brought them through from a younger age. But they, don't, they tend not to appoint them as their replacement coach. If you know what I mean, like no one's come across and taken Vida as since he stopped working with Djokovic and that kind Alex, of thing.
3: Alex Malkin, I think.
2: Well, there you go. <laughs> but, yeah, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's an interesting move that, but you'd think like looking at that, you'd think like, why would say, I don't know, why would, Zverev, put, I mean, yeah, Zverev, why would Zverev not to Tell you what, I'm going to go and get that guy. That would, and, and I guess that we had that in football, didn't we, for a few years back in the 90s? Whereas now it's it's changed full it's flipped now fully in that we've got these managers who never really played at the very highest level of the game because they're basically they're getting jobs purely on coaching standard. Mm-hmm. We haven't quite reached that in tennis. Um, and I,
1: I think so. I, I think I think that that is the right way that you should be hiring the best coaches, not I mean, because but football's a good example. There's so many brilliant players Who've made dreadful coaches, uh, yeah. Steven Stephen Gerard, George to think of one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it but but at the same time, there's others who
3: and I'm thinking, you know, Zidane. I'm not I'm not convinced Zidane's an amazing coach, but he was the right guy for that Real Madrid team because mm. it was a team of amazing egos who just needed some
2: bloke <laughs> who they
3: actually respected. I don't know, it, it's a really
1: difficult
2: I, I th- kind I of think dynamic. That, that, I think that on that, I don't want to go too much into football, but I think there's an interesting Sort of somebody raised it to me that maybe if roy Keane would have if his only job would have been managing real madrid he might have two european cups because his mm. problem is that he can't understand that people aren't as good as the players who he was used to be yeah. around in <laughs> whereas if rafan if if zinedine zidane would have managed sunderland would he have got them halfway up the premier league from the bottom of the from the bottom of the championship but i think again what it what it comes to is that the problem with having ex-players as coaches is one, what they'll always do is just what their, their coaches did to them. That's what tends to happen. And just because you're good at something doesn't mean that you know why you're good at it. Mm. Like sometimes you could just be you could just be phenomenally talented. Like and and, and you know, like right now would would anybody real like Benoit Paire's been 3 in the world. Does anybody think Benoit is going to make a great coach? Uh, not three in the world, he's been top 20 in the world. Sorry. Does anybody think Benoit <laughs> Pere, but he just happens to have very talented hands. And there's been a lot of players like that. You know, d- does that mean that and inherently some people just know how a tennis court works? And I know I've spoken to a couple of, you know, when you hear, when I hear like pundits and commentators, they go, oh, I would make a great coach. And like, what are you basing that on? Like, what, <laughs>
1: what yes. but, yeah. Um, just to take the sort of Zidane to Sunderland um, example back into tennis, if you took, say, uh, I'm trying to remember who was coach of the year last year now, but I, I'm going to say Juan Carlos Ferrero for example, um, and you just took him away from Carlos Alcaraz and gave him to Peter Bertrand, who is the Dominican number two and who is 656 <laughs> in the world. Is there... a a chance that actually a bit like Zidane at, at Sunderland or Roy Keane in almost all of his jobs, that that there could be a disconnect where it's like, well, I have no real conception of the problems that you're facing.
2: I I think so, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's it, it's how it it can you can you develop a player is different from can I give them that extra one or two percent that that they need here. And can I understand that this player might just have like like Juan Carlos Ferrero? He had a thunderous forehand. He had a great forehand. Now Carlos Alcaraz also has a great forehand. Does Does Juan Carlos Ferrero? I don't know. I don't mean to cast any it, Does Juan Carlos Ferrero know how to build a forehand? Because hmm. he's always just had one. He's always just had a great forehand. Does he know what it's like to not know how to hit a great forehand? Because he's always had one, and the player he's coached has always had one, and that was before he ever came to Juan Carlos. Well, yeah. Before he ever came to Juan Carlos Ferrero to to be his coach. So does he understand now? Ironically, the only player who, um, the only other player who I think Juan Carlos Ferrero coached in, at the top of the game is Alex Verev. who has a shit that forehand, that forehand. <laughs> yeah. a shit forehand, and Juan Carlos Ferrero didn't do anything with his forehand.
1: Well, and to be fair, he was there only with him for about two months yeah. or something, and yeah. Hated the fact that he didn't train properly and turn up late and stuff.
2: Yeah, I, and I think you know, I'm sure that was absolutely the case. But um, there's there, yeah, there's different there's different types of coach. But I just I've, I always find it strange how players don't delve. And I'll 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 be fair to Andy Murray because I know he's done this. He had a spell a couple of years ago where I think he might have been between coaches. I think he might have stopped working with Maresmo or something, and he went and and he asked people. Right. Who are the best two coaches in the country in Britain now? I need some work on a few of my shots. Who are the best two junior coaches? And he went and basically went and did some work with um. That that was about seven or eight years ago. Went and did some work with Louis Kaye and Ben Harren,
0: hmm.
2: um, on the technical sides of his game. And he went and you know he did that. Look at look look at Jack Draper. Jack Draper. No no one in the top one hundred would have been taking James Trotman. Um would have would have approached Trotts and gone. Um, right, I'm I'm looking to break. I'm, say, 90 in the world now. I want to get myself into the top 20. No one would have gone to Trotz and gone, will you come and coach me? Here's, here's a one-year contract. Will you come and coach me? Trotz is a great coach. He's a top-class coach. And somebody should have done that, but nobody did. He only happened to – and I don't know if Jack would have done that. It only just so happened that Jack stopped working with Ryan Jones. He lives in London, trades at the NTC. And Trotz was employed by the Lawn Tennis Association. So that's how they ended up together. But it, it blows my mind that people don't come and just take those guys. Mark Hilton's a top-class coach, an excellent coach. I don't... Why would no foreigner come? And, and like, why would... Again, why would Alex Verev not come to Hilts and go, come and coach me?
1: Uh, am I not right in saying that Hilts doesn't want to be on tour full-time?
2: No, he doesn't. I'm just using examples yeah. of why, sure. you know... and. It, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I hope I'm not speaking out attorney with Hills, but like, you know, or, or any coach. But I imagine everybody's got a certain amount of money that you could offer them <laughs> yeah. to go. And, and you'd think such as Alex Verev would be in that position to go, yeah. right, I've got loads of money and I need somebody who can take me the next step here. But instead, what he'll do is he'll go to Sergey Bruguera, or I've seen today he's on with Thomas Kamker.
3: And and in kind of Verev's case, I mean, I guess there must be an appeal to be like, this guy can win a Grand Slam singles title. I can go and potentially do that. You know, mm-hmm. whether we think yeah. he actually will or not. You know, that yeah, that level of success is surely really appealing to the majority of kind of coaches
2: in the game. Yeah, um, and I know one of the and I know, I know a top one hundred. I'll be straight with it. It was Alex Zverev, who was introduced to a coach a few years ago as a coach friend of mine as um, this is so-and-so he's coached four players into the top 100 from outside the top 500. And Alex Vera's response was, am I supposed to be impressed with that? <laughs> so Jesus to his face as well. So that, that shows you what now if somebody came to me, if I was, if I was a tennis player, knowing what I know now, if I was a tennis player and somebody said, this guy's taken four separate players from outside 500 into 100 I'd be going, right, wh- how much do you charge? And when are you available? Because that's a serious coach.
1: Serious indeed. Um, right, let's move on, shall we? Uh, we've got another question. Thank- thanks, Chris Thornton, for that question, which has given us half Great an question. hour of podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Ideal. Um, we've got one from Peanut, who I was chatting to. Last week. Oh, I should say, um, thank you to everyone who got in touch Uh including Peanut, who disagreed with us on the uh, trans segment of our uh, podcast last week when we talked about Martina Navratilova's comments on trans women in female sport. Um, But we disagreed, and um, Peanut is still listening, and we we move on. But thank you to everyone who got in touch, and um, even particular thanks to one listener who Calvin knows well, who doesn't get on with Calvin and said, even Calvin was respectful and interesting (laughs) on the topic. Um, So thanks very much. Well, I hope that we'll be able to talk about it with someone who knows a lot more about it than us at some point, but that um, is a few weeks down the line, I suspect.
0: Anyway Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Peanut
1: gets in touch with a uh, straightforward question. Can Rafa win the French Open this year? And what are his chances for a second gold medal next year? Uh, George, do you want to start start off with that?
3: Uh, well, I think the second one's easier than the first. I would <laughs> Interesting. Give, I would give Nadal about a five percent chance of winning a gold medal next year really, I really think, and i'm possibly being generous on five percent just don't see it
1: however okay well for... you, you're gonna have to map out this year before we can argue about next year
3: well this year i i genuinely think like, and it feels crazy to say this i think he's in a lot of trouble rapper and i've the percentage is only higher at like 25% right now, which is crazy low for Nadal. Like every French Open I come in, even when I think Djokovic might be edging it, Nadal's 49% and Djokovic is 50. Sorry. Well, Djokovic is 50%, Nadal's 49%, and the rest of the field's 1%. That's mm. kind of the margins I've been looking at over the year. This year, it kind of feels to me Nadal, even in this current state of injury, is probably still 25% Novak's 35 40% Alcaraz 30% something like that haven't done the maths
1: and then the rest <coughs> make up the final 5% <laughs> Max I just sorry I'm just on the day that Rishi Sunak has been making a massive national speech about how we should all struggle like study maths to 18 and <laughs> civil servant George Belshaw is like just proudly unable to add up to 100 <laughs> What did, I, what did I get to?
2: Um, 35 I, I plus 25. <laughs> I actually think it was quite a closer. Even aside from that, you're giving like Medvedev what, a 2% chance? Not even. <laughs> you're not even giving Medvedev a 2% chance? No, what, not it in the or? French Open. That's, that's nonsense. I don't think he's going to win it. I think he's nowhere near going to win it, but there's no way he's not higher than 2%. He
3: yeah. doesn't beat Djokovic, Alcaraz, or
2: Nadal. He might Alcaraz not have to. How many might times? Have to, but how many times? Has Nadal, how many? <laughs> how many? Um, how many French Opens has Nadal won where he's beat like Puerta in yeah. the final? And there's there's wow. also
1: a non-zero chance that Djokovic, Nadal, and Alcaraz are all injured for the French Open. Um,
3: I I just realised I calculated to ninety-five percent. <laughs> rather than hundred, so you can have you can have another couple of Medvedev and, right. and Sesar okay. Pasquali. Like. There you and go. What Calvary. about like, keep you Sinner? Happy. What
2: about Sinner and Rune? You're giving them one percent each. I'm giving the rest of the field five percent. Five percent. That's I just don't. I don't believe any of them lunacy.
3: would win the friendship. But that's <laughs> absolute lunacy.
1: <laughs> so sorry. Just 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 what what percentage are <clears throat> you giving Nadal? If we can just stray away from your dodgy maths, so twenty five. Twenty-five. Okay, Calvin, what what percentage are you giving Rafa Nadal of winning the French Open?
2: Uh, twenty. See, I think it's higher than that. Like, I I, well, I, I don't know if he's going to play. I am saying right now, yeah. Like, I don't know how much he's going to play until then. If you ask, I am giving it twenty right now. If yeah. he's at the if he's at the French Open and he's had another tournament in him, and he's you know he's had a decent run in it, that goes up greatly.
1: So let's say he plays Rome, wins two matches, loses in three sets to.
2: Hogaroon or someone like that. Wow. Then I'm up at like 35%, 40%. Mm.
1: I suppose the, the other thing is that obviously Nervo Djokovic is carrying an elbow issue at the moment and isn't in a great mood about it. So that affects the percentage. I'm. I don't right. read
2: anything to that. I don't believe him. Don't.
1: <laughs> great. We've got another summer of that. Something <laughs> yeah, summit, the summit just came out of the
3: swamp there. It was a thousand <laughs> crocodiles. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um i think i don't know I, I i agree with you george that i do think nadal's in a lot of trouble like this foot treatment he had last year is not a, a fix it's a sticking plaster that generally lasts as far as i can tell six to twelve months he's obviously an exceptional athlete and you know works at freakazoid levels so maybe it'd be longer than that but equally the guy just drags himself through roland garras uh one way or another so I, I kind of think that he might win it. I, I And I'm trying to apply the same logic to him winning like Olympic gold at Roland Garros where basically he gets through this season somehow playing about eight tournaments and he says the only two things I'm doing next year are playing Roland Garros and then playing there again for the Olympics and like literally nothing else matters and then he just retires in a crumpled heap of a man. Um, but... I just think it might be a bridge too far. I kind of agree with with you that it it's hard to see, given what he's been through in the last year or two, that there might that there might be a, a chance for him. So Yeah, and I,
3: I would also caveat that I'm I'm using Calvin's get out here that I'm more than happy to shift that percentage. I'm just going based on the evidence we have right now, this second, like I don't see how anyone looking at Nadal from what he's been through last year, can be sure that as a 37-turning 38-year-old next year, he's going to be a great nick to go and win that. Um,
1: oh, yeah. All all, um, all opinions expire as soon as they're voiced. That's that's a, a yeah. fair disclaimer, George. Um, but I, I know that that will disappoint Peanut because she has Rafa Nadal as her profile picture. So <laughs> I, I And I actually saw, I think, it, someone replied to her going, of course he's going to win. She's like, well, I think he can too, but... You know, it's a worry. Uh, let's move on to Ian Warren in Melbourne, who asked, during the Masters coverage last week, Rory McIlroy... Uh, Rory McIlroy, not McAvoy, uh was interviewed by CBS walking up the ninth fairway. How long before we see something similar in tennis? End of set hook-up with the comms team in Terrabang? Um I mean, I, 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 I have to- spoken about this a lot. I think tennis ha- can... Do so much more with its broadcasting that can be really innovative. Um, I don't think we've even approached. And and for the record, I, I love Eurosport, but the cube is not the innovation I'm looking for. Um, it's just an interview. <laughs> um, uh, it's a bit weird, and I just every time they say it, all I can think of is Philip Schofield. So um, <laughs> that's not the kind of innovation I'm looking for. I think golf is great. I think one of the really good things to come out of Live Golf is that the PGA Tour have removed the stick from their backside and gone, we need to catch up very quickly. And it's been brilliant, like, listening to people like McElroy and Rahm and uh, Justin Thomas, like, talk about what they're doing during the match. It, it's, it's fabulous. And, you know, I appreciate that because golf is what I call a side-by-side sport, not a head-to-head sport, You can be a bit more candid because, you know, if Tiger Woods finds out that you're hitting a seven iron at the ninth second shot, it doesn't make a difference to him really, and he wouldn't find out anyway. And even if he did, what what difference does it make? But I'd love to see tennis going into you know, stick a headset on someone at the end of the first set. You know, when Daniil Medvedev's gone off for a pee, put a headset on Alexander Zverev. I absolutely, or put one on Daniil Medvedev and make him talk while he's having a pee. I don't know, George. (laughs) yeah i think that
3: the actually most interesting bit of coverage that's happened and you know no one will ever find it to know this but actually was on amazon when they weren't having ad breaks between the changeovers yeah so often broadcasters are flicking between that always the most interesting bit it's always when people are losing their absolute Bloody marbles and screaming at the umpire, and they're having a bit of a row across the chairs. Like, why on earth would you take an ad break there? I'd much rather them take ad breaks during the first three games of a set, just not that important. <laughs> Don't care, like, it is criminal to put ad breaks through change events. So, that's that's one thing they could definitely do better.
2: Yeah, Calvin. Um, I'd, I've got no issue with them uh, interviewing players in principle at the change events, I've got no interest in the way that athletes are now. I've got no interest in listening to the majority of athletes talk. They're so PR conscious and so cliche driven in, in the way that they talk and that kind of thing. Like I would love to, I've no issue at all. I'd love to hear Daniel Medvedev speak uh, at the change events between points. I have zero interest in watching Emma Raducanu give an interview at the change events like or and I don't you know I'm not picking on Emma there or or any of you know any of 90% of tennis players because she knew that they you know what they're going to do is yeah I just got to got to ha- work harder and the classic will come out like the I've just got to trust the process here and play my uh, game yeah play my game and just just keep focused and hopefully turn things around I've I it's like after it's like when they interview footballers after football matches like they're just boring aren't they they're just crap <laughs> like you know i just don't want to see that but i agree with george that like um i don't get why they take adverts in in the change events because the problem with tennis is even if the pundits when you want to hear the pundits talk you don't as we've discussed before that tennis commentators don't talk when the points are going on which doesn't help so you're only getting 20 minute 20 second bursts in between points
3: just uh, returning to the interview thing. I mean, you- you've just touched on my least favorite interview in the whole of sport, which the U.S. Open has, which is the interview with the player as they come on the court. Yeah, which is Rubbish. Possibly the worst thing in any sport.
1: It's so weird. I, I, I don't get it. Like, I, I really don't understand. I, I think it's almost to like introduce them to the viewer. Like, I think that's the idea. But it's like. Surely you've got VT that does a much better job of this, and yeah,
2: it... I mean other sports do it. Like I watch quite a bit of basketball. Basketball will go; they go and interview the manager while the or the coach while the game is going on. Yeah, and he actually actively talks about tactically what is happening in the and match.
1: Ru- rugby do it really well if you watch so VT right. sports rugby okay. co- coverage. They'll go and stick a headset on a coach in the stands, which is excellent.
2: Yeah, I, d- um, I think the I do think the main problem is is the athletes, and it's not really to have a go at them. It's just the way that they've now become accustomed to it. You see it. What I find strange is you see why when new, new, when lesser, lower ranked players get interviewed. Like they did a little bit of this in the pro UK Pro League when the commentary was on. They interviewed at the end of sets, and and those guys like no even no one even knows who they are. Like, but they they don't have to be PR conscious and that kind of thing. But even then, it was it was so cliche driven, hmm. everything that was said.
1: Yeah, I mean maybe we just have to be selective, like basically just always interview Fabio Fanini at the end of a set. Yeah. And then presumably we'll get something insane from him. Maybe like Kyrgios, Medvedev. Yeah. I think I think we can get behind that. Uh, there you go, Ian. I hope that I hope that answers your question to, to some extent. Um, roll on headsets on players, I say. Uh, right, one last question from Balvin Ketton, who asks, How are we going to stop <laughs> That's singles? That's a
3: joke. That's, yes, that of can't course, be real. It,
1: it is a joke, but oh, I wrote sorry. it and you've, you've ruined it. Uh, sorry. Who asks, how are we going to stop singles players entering doubles and then pulling out A? <laughs> um I I tried to write a clever joke but George has ruined it so uh, Sorry I, well, probably, I you
3: never know with the internet these days like we just had a super <laughs> fan who's like going balvin get Thank, on
1: Thanks dad you never know with the internet these days Um Calvin I I know you wanted to talk about this um a growing problem with doubles entry lists just being full of singles players who have no real commitment to the tournament
2: yeah, um, it's it was a problem last week, and it was ridiculous last week. in that Rune and Fritz, who to be fair to them, had both. I think they won two matches yeah. in that tournament to make the quarters, or semis, semis? I think. semis, semis, right? And you just knew that there's no way that they were going to play the semi when because Rune was still in singles. They were both still in singles but at yeah, that stage, yeah. um, and so there's no way that they were going to. And I don't blame. Them. I really don't blame them for risk for, you wouldn't want to be on, they've got a chance of winning Masters 1000. You wouldn't want to be on the doubles court later that day playing another match that could potentially go on for another hour and a half, two hours. Um, but it's always going to happen. And this is the problem that they enter. And especially like, like for example, next week when it's in Madrid, we've got two masters back to back. So you've got Madrid, which is at altitude, completely different environment to Rome. The courts are different. the The air quality is different. That kind of thing. Now there's there's ten pairs of singles players who are singles only players in the draw in Madrid, and doubles players can't get in. So the, Henry and Julian, who I coach, can't get in. They they're ranked 50 in the world now, and they can't get in that tournament because of the the the, the way the rank way that the entry um, system works. Now, if the players are still in singles, if any of those. 20 players are still in singles come Wednesday, then they're not going to play doubles. I can guarantee you they're not going to play doubles because they think they've got a chance of winning the tournament, which they Mm. have in singles. If they're out of singles, they're not going to play doubles because they're going to want to get to Rome. Why would you want to carry on being at altitude in Madrid, playing in completely different conditions when you've got another tournament starting in five days' time down in Rome? You're going to want to get there. So all that we're going to get next week is we're going to get this situation where some of them are going to win because when you've got that many in, they're going to play each other, apart from anything else. So you're just going to have... I I guarantee you 1,000% that at least two or three of those pairs, at least two or three, are just going to withdraw from the tournament once Mm. the tournament has started, which means that you can't get alternates in. Mm.
1: And it, 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 it... The, the sort of comeback would be well more people want to watch alexander zverev or Grigor dimitrov like play and that may well be true but it it makes the tennis pyramid smaller and less sustainable right because you're not putting more money into more pockets
2: i have no issue with it I've no I, I completely agree with that then but if you want to see them play they've got to
1: play've
2: hmm. actually got to play and the not just enter it and play one match and then then out of there there's also an easy solution to it let's say that you can have Next week's a 32 draw. Let's say that you can have four players who are in on singles ranking. Four, sorry, four pairs that are getting in through one or both of the players' singles ranking.
1: Sorry, you just have to explain this. So, like, you don't enter doubles tournaments on your doubles ranking
2: no you enter when the ent- when the entries come in so what a few years ago about 10 years ago they wanted to they thought they had a chance of getting the very top players in the game to play doubles every week now the the, the singles players at the time were a bit disingenuous in this they were saying that the reason they weren't playing doubles is because back then it, you you only got in on your doubles ranking they were saying the the reason why they weren't playing doubles is because they didn't want to play every week and the only way they could get their rankings up was to play doubles every week so what they did was they changed it so you can now get into doubles tournaments. This is at every level. You get in, you 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 get in on whatever's highest, your singles or your doubles, and and it's and, and the, the it's combined with your partner. I see. So so if you're both ranked, say if if Carlos Alcaraz played with Novak Djokovic, they would be three. Mm-hmm. Their combined ranking would be three.
1: But they wouldn't but be seeded because their the seeding, they're seeding is just on ranking. doubles ranking. Yeah.
2: yeah okay. So. Okay. But I don't get what but there's no limit to it. So what you could do is you could still say, right, four it's a it's let's say if it's a if it's a sixteen draw, two players get in on two pairs get in or three pairs get in on singles um singles only. Um and if it's if it's a thirty two draw, then five pairs or um four or five pairs get in. Because then all you're gonna get, right? Again, as I say no disrespect to this, you could still get You know, people want to watch Alex Varev play with whoever he's playing with. You could still get that. What no one really cares about and, you know, is watching Diego Schwartzman and Sebastian Baez play on an outdoor court. And I can tell you why no one cares about it, because you can go and look at the court and there's no one watching. And again, no disrespect to those two. But just saying that you can get two guys who are ranked, say, 32 and 40 entering, that's not to pull the crowds in. To watch that. Um, so yeah, and it's it's a problem specifically because the doubles guys and I'm I might sound biased to this because they're the, they're around the ranking that the lads that I coach, but they can't get in the tournaments because the big points are in the Masters and they've got no chance of getting in a Masters unless they can have a good run in the uh, in, in one of the Slams. So the only way you're really going to climb now at their ranking is good runs. In the Masters and the and the Slams, they can't play in any of the Masters. It's br- brutal.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Well, here's to here's to a, a huge run at Roland Garros, and then uh, and then and then nothing matters anymore.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Definitely.
1: Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I've got Calvin Betts on our resident tennis coach and George Belshaw, the uh, Aston Villa correspondent for the <laughs> Tennis Unfiltered podcast, who is extremely buoyant at the moment and has, has been regaling us with tales of all the midfielders that Liverpool and Arsenal are going to try and sign <laughs> uh, from Villa Park this summer. Chance to be a Let's hope like not. Uh, Anya Loves Tennis has been in touch on Twitter and she wants us to talk about Medvedev's sneaky tricks and how he lulls everyone by his rhetorical skills. Well, certainly Daniil Klaivadev... Uh, has I think pulled a fast one on the whole world by telling us that he hates clay when I think basically he doesn't like getting clay in his shoes but as far as I can tell he quite enjoys playing tennis on it because he is starting to show a bit of form on the surface Uh, he beat uh, Lorenzo Sinego and Alexander Zverev uh, of which more in a moment uh, before losing to Holger Rune, um, Calvin, you kind of touched on this in the uh, in the first half, but you think that Daniil Medvedev has more than a five percent chance of winning the French <laughs> Open?
2: Yeah, I don't think I don't think he's going to win it, but I definitely, if it was played a hundred times, I think he'd win it more than five. Mm. Um, so,
1: do you think it's all all a bit of? I mean, maybe not a deliberate nonsense, but kind of. A bit of a nonsense of Daniil Medvedev hating clay.
2: Yeah, um, I mean there are reasons why I can understand why he doesn't like it. It's not um, players with his game style and his physiology don't tend to like clay because he's tall and he needs to run a lot the way he plays, and it's easy to wrong foot tall players on clay courts. Um, but at the same time, he's from Mainland Europe, or if you count Russia, do you count Russia as mainland Europe?
1: I'm never really sure. It it it's yeah. like on maps, it sort of counts. Yeah, yeah let's say so, East, yeah, yeah, mainland. So not? he
2: will have he will have spent a lot of time in juniors playing clay courts, and mm. um, he 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 will feel somewhat at home about it. Not his favourite surface by any stretch, but um, I think it, you know he's, he's he's not like say you know one of the old serve volleyers who you would go they're just, just going to might as well just not bother playing the clay court tournaments
1: hmm. George do you, do you think similarly that that it was always a bit of a myth um, I mean I've seen
3: play okay matches on it it's probably I, I, I don't have the stats in front of me but I'd imagine it's his worth surface statistically so I wouldn't say it's completely untrue I mean it's possible the grass is just because there's a shorter season and a defeat on that does actually ruin your statistical ranking quite a bit <laughs> compared like clay to hard but um he's, he, he's not terrible on it I I, th- I just think at the minute and you know five percent of maybe being a bit flippant with the numbers but I, I just honestly on all the slams this is the one I really don't see anyone outside of Djokovic Alcaraz or nadal winning right now um mm. and that wasn't the case last year when zverev was fitter and there was possibly a bit of a time where i thought sissabas might kind of break that mold as well but whilst nadal's injury has ruled things out there's you know Alcaraz and djokovic are still the best two players in the world on this surface by some way i would say right mm. now at the moment so it, it, it's more of a reflection that this isn't medvedev's best surface and there's three guys who are pretty bloody good on it who I'd be quite surprised if they didn't go and win it and things can happen and it can be crazy but um, I, I actually disagree I think if you play this French Open hundred times I wouldn't say Medvedev would win it five times I think it's closer to
2: well, you said 2% to three actually. times you said two percent yeah. actually yeah. So and I think that's like I'm one or two percent like
3: I genuinely do think that like I, right now I think Medvedev could be better and that percentage could get higher and he might prove me wrong but he was fairly handily beaten by Sissabass last year but like, it wasn't a close match I think there's guys, you know, whereas Tsitsipas, I wouldn't back Medvedev really on a hard court slam. I'd expect Medvedev to win that match a lot. Whereas I think it's kind of fifty-fifty here. And if you take a fifty-fifty match through every round, and then there's players I would back over fifty-fifty um, against Medvedev on clay.
2: You think if then, they play, yeah, your odds if, go down. If they played if the French Open was tomorrow and Medvedev played Tsitsipas, it's fifty-fifty. I think Sisabasa's got good passes results on Clay over the Sissi years. He's field. not playing shit, well at the minute. But... Dog shit form. He's not going to be in bed for <laughs> Yeah,
1: his shoulders in pieces.
2: Yeah. yeah. I think okay. I, had to, I, I don't. I question that. Not question it. I'd put a couple of caveats on when you said that those three are the three best players in the world on Clay, in that the injuries haven't helped. Like, you know, I don't want to encourage George to start frothing at the mouth here, but like <laughs> Dominic Team would legitimately have a. If he hadn't got injured, you yeah. would say is I'd even probably have him on a par or slightly above Djokovic um, right now. If certainly he, for a period. he wasn't yeah. injured, yeah. And also Zverev, to be fair, before last year. And it's mm. weird because the way he plays. Zverev's, there's an argument that um, Clay Court is Zverev's best surface. Um, yeah. And I think
3: if this tournament was coming two months later, I would make Zverev more yeah. of a favour than Medvedev. I just don't think he'll be quite ready by then. But, you know, this is longer this part of the season people that kind of give it credit for like a lot can change over the next four to five weeks that will change how I view things.
1: um right well done we managed to talk about tennis for about five minutes but i, I just <laughs> want to talk about the bitchiness that's been going on between Vera and Medvedev. right now now that we've we've done our lip service to the tennis um it it Possibly my favourite bit of men's tennis for about three weeks. <laughs> like, I, uh, it's just, ah, uh, I can't get enough of it. I can't fit it all in my mouth at once. Um, so, Zverev lost. That's the first thing. Um, 3 6, Took seven, it well. 7. 5, 7. 6. He served for the match twice. Uh, he was very angry. He got interviewed by Sky in German, and we're grateful to Yannick Schneider, uh, our good friend, uh, for translating. His German words, he called Medvedev one of the most unfair players in the world. Alexander Zverev, I take fair play and sportsmanship very seriously. He does not. He takes a toilet break when it's not possible anymore. There are a thousand situations in which he feels that I start to play better, in which he tries to do something every time. I'm extremely disappointed from him as an athlete. Of course you can argue it's not good form for me that I got distracted. This should not happen to me and it's totally my fault and it's really bad from my side. But I still feel fair play should be always part of sports. There was also an extremely uh, icy handshake at the net which kind of started all of this. Um, Medvedev's response which actually came after he lost to Runa, I think, in the press conference. Uh, He said, I do think that, honestly, probably 90 players on tour and great friends. Well, with maybe 50, it's not like best friends, but still a great relationship. So I usually feel bad when something on court happens. And let's let's say I'm not fair play, because I know I'm not. Uh, Sasha is living in his own world. I already had five players in the locker room come up to me and say, Come on, Daniil, why are you so unfair? He said with a smile. Uh, Sasha when he loses we can maybe find 20 view inter- 25 interviews of him where he does say something strange when he says something is not fair play you're like okay great look at yourself in the mirror um i mean just so good
3: the mocking of the handshake was the best bit as well I and mean, that <laughs> was just so good with Rude. like that that was peak Medvedev so you know, so is kid. it
1: he basically like the handshake in the Medvedev match was like Zverev basically didn't even look at him right And then when Medvedev lost to Rune, he went up to the Rune and just like looking away from him Like before he'd even got there. And then did Rune say that you're so unfair or something?
3: (laughs) It's great. It's just exactly the sort of uh, fun banter that gets people kind of interested all of a sudden. You know, you've got a bit of spiky rivalry. Okay. Yeah. Zverev can be a real grumpy goose when he loses a match. I mean, he really does throw his toys out the pram and have seen it kind of over the years. So Medvedev's not wrong there. But, um, you know, he's possibly got a bit of a point about him bolted off court for a a toilet break, even though he came back within the time. You know, he's not supposed to do that. But is it really the end of the world that much? I think it just... They they do get, then. um, you know... Get a bit, bit obsessed over silly things and, and Medvedev is probably the worst player to kind of do that to because he will just relentlessly mock you at the next opportunity and that's exactly what he's done which is great for us but Zverev probably feels like a bit of a, a tool as ever.
2: It was a bit weird like Zverev responded like that because the, the twice when they've played and Medvedev's behaved a bit weird is like Zverev's actually a thought and I don't like Zverev, I think he's a dick but like he's... Um, he's actually responded quite well in that he's just like chuckled and like thought, yeah, this guy's just nuts. But then he's ended up just reverting to being Alex Verev <laughs> and coming across like a dick afterwards. And I mean, there was some great stuff in it. Like when Medvedev, when he just went and took the single stick out for no reason, <laughs> just yeah, so laid it on the floor.
1: It's a piece of court equipment that like. If you, I was to ask you to draw everything on the tennis court, you might forget to draw it in. But yeah, what well, it holds the net up to the height of the post yeah, uh, yeah. all the way on the singles lines. And inexplicably, he just just removes it. Yeah, just for, for no
2: reason. I don't know what he even did it for. No, um,
1: I, I think he maybe just lost his serve and he was just annoyed. But yeah. it, it was very but strange. Then
2: there was another one as well. I don't think this was last week, but I'd seen somebody put a clip up of when they played each other, I think, in the final of Turin, was it a couple of years ago or last year? Maybe? Right. Um wouldn't and, be last year, but yeah. And Zverev had said, um yeah, it wouldn't be last year. And Zverev said, you know, like said something like, Oh, we've known each other and been friends since we were um since we were like twelve or something. I actually didn't realise apparently Daniel Medvedev's wife is Very good friends with the girl who has accused Zverev of uh, correct, yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. So I think there's there's obviously some some deeper issues. Yeah, so the 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 Zverev said, oh, you know. Go on, go on, James. Sorry.
1: Well, so the, the the kind of background to that, yeah, as you say, um, I've forgotten Medvedev's wife's name very briefly,
2: but it's Medvedeva, she's called. Now, yes, though.
1: exactly. But her first name, I think, is Vera, but I can't remember. Um, anyway, she is very good friends with um Olga sherepova who um has obviously produced all these allegations against Alex Ferev. Now, uh, an ATP investigation found no case to answer. Um, but obviously there's animosity there and Zverev subsequently in victory speeches after beating Medvedev has name-dropped her a couple of times, Um, you know, saying, oh, you know, it's great to have you here as well. Yeah, yeah. And it's obviously quite pointed because clearly there isn't necessarily a very good relationship there. I mean, uh, we're kind of speculating and gossiping a bit there, but yes, obviously there is quite a lot of needle here.
2: No, well well, Medvedev then came out in a press conference after and said, I don't know why he keeps saying that we're friends, because it's always him who says it and we've never been <laughs> friends <laughs> um, and I thought that was just great, but the what he said the other day with the um, five people have come up to me and said that, and, and sort of basically taken the piss out of Zverev was, was fantastic because there's, there's just no greater response than everybody else thinks you're a prick
1: It's it's like. it's proper like Kyrgios pass levels of like Actually, sure. I've got more friends than you, so... Um, you I mean, don't
2: want to... I mean, if there's any player who you were going to wanted to start one of these sort of rounds with, it, it wouldn't be Medvedev because he's probably the smartest player on the tour, isn't he? <laughs> like, like, it's like, like you just, you're not going to win that argument because he's also a massive shithouse and he doesn't care.
1: Do you think that we let Medvedev get away with being a massive shithouse because he's funny and likeable?
2: I mean, it's one of those, it's not letting him get away with it. It's like the umpires if he's breaking the rules, the umpires can do something about it. I don't think that you are allowed to go to the toilet as long as you're back. I don't yeah, think Yeah, but we're... like
1: if if, if if Zverev or Holgerun, both of whom you have mixed feelings on, to say the least, if they did that, do you think you would be less likely to go, well, you know, you're kind of allowed to do that?
2: No, I'd say that the umpires should deal with them. Which, yeah. you know, if 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 Medvedev is doing anything that's against the rules, the umpire should deal with it. And, you know, as we're going to talk about in a bit, the umpires don't often deal with um, things in the way that they should.
1: George, do you think, think there's any, any well, truth I think,
3: in that? Um, I, th- I think just, and this is possibly a bit of an unfair thing, so I just think Medvedev's a bit more of a, a human, isn't it? Like, we all know that it's really competitive, they can be knobs about it. But he laughs at himself as well like he's mm. got a good he feels more of a real person the way he kind of takes things like you know people not being sportsman like on the court okay depends on the kind of level of severity here but a man going for a wee within the time changer it was really not that bad in the grand scheme of things. You know, if Medvedev spat at him or something. Then yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> but they they just struggle to kind of really comprehend things. And you know, Medvedev loses his head on court, but it's always in a very kind of creative weird, funny way and then you get a bit of I mean mean would would say say the match. He's, always, I, I, but... he's
1: definitely, I have definitely seen him overstep the mark. And he also has,
3: like, when he was younger for sure as yeah. well. I mean there was certain issues And certain
1: also years, but... it should be pointed out that if if someone did the Daniil Medvedev tactics to Daniil Medvedev, he would also lose his head. As do you remember that I mean the Sitsipass Medvedev match in Miami f- three or four years ago when Tsitsipas was pulling his toilet break nonsense, and Medvedev absolutely lost it, which yeah. I think is kind of the the root of their enmity as well.
3: I think you you put a little quote in the um in our chat this week as well, James, that was quite interesting from like Zverev's perspective, where he said, you know, their rivalry would never live up to Federer and Nadal's. You know, and there's many reasons why not Zverev, to be honest, you know, but the one he sort of picked out was that Medvedev's kind of like unlikable and because he's not this that you know you know roger and Rafa have this great like fair sportsmanship you know the reason their rival was good was because they're bloody brilliant at tennis there's nothing about the fair play are you telling me we wouldn't have been watching that match more if those two absolutely hated each other <laughs> went yeah what are you on about
1: <laughs> i mean also like it's the 21st century <laughs> Like, probably the biggest sporting rivalry, if you go and ask anyone on the street under the age of 25, is Jake Paul and KS, oh no, Logan, oh I don't know, some sort of YouTuber. <laughs> Tommy Fury and Jake Paul is probably what they'll say, I don't know. So th- there is uh, something going on in this era of um, style over substance. And and the great thing is that Medvedevs, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Rune. They can provide substance as well. They are good tennis players. And if they're going to piss and moan at each other, let's face it, people are much more interested in that than they are in... I, I always go back to, and it's not often that Billie Jean King talks so much that sometimes you can forget everything that she says as a result. And she did a press conference at Roland Garros this year that lasted about an hour and a half. And I don't think there were that many questions. But one thing that did stick on my head was she was like, right about the people don't people don't care about forehands and backhands and like you know to an extent that's true obviously lots of our listeners do care about forehands and backhands but when it comes to wider appeal and growing the sport and tennis being uh, a relevant and mainstream entertainment product absolutely we need this stuff
3: It's funny you say that quote from Billie Jean King because Roger Federer actually answered that question in the flip way around to me once years ago when I was asking him about something far more interesting. He goes, he ended the question with, but I think people would much rather talk about forehands and backhands. That's why we're here. (laughs) And I was so pissed off with people in that press room who laughed at that and were like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was like, any other player, like, absolute (laughs) nonsense, but that man can just make idiot seat out his end all the time but yeah I totally agree with Billie Jean King rather than Roger on that one as as much as I like Roger in his own way that you know we're really talking about forehand ain't that
1: interesting unless it's Calvin Betton I'm not that (laughs) in good save George good save Um, there's one thing I want to point out uh, in defence of Alexander Zverev and you won't hear me say that very often but just there was a quote during the rounds last week um From Zverev. The quote, and this is what was doing the rounds, was I don't want to sound arrogant, but in last year's French Open, I was playing my best tennis ever on clay. If I had not been injured, it could have won the title. Now, George will know that the source of this quote will tell him that it wasn't strictly accurate because it was Luigi Gatto tweeting it. Um, And now, Luigi Gatto is prolific, but not always very reliable when it comes to quoting things in context or in full. This is the actual quote. He was asked in a Eurosport interview, uh, do you feel it was the time for you to beat Rafa on his court? When he did his ankle. He said, for some reason I actually did. Not to sound arrogant, Rafa is the best player ever to play on this surface. You never know what will happen in a match like this. Of course I can lose the game if I don't injure myself, but I had the feeling I was playing better than ever on this surface. For some reason I felt I could at least compete with him, and I have. Of course the outcome will always depend on little things. However, I felt it could have been my week. I mean, Calvin... Hey! I, oh, everyone's hands are up. Come on, Calvin.
2: <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I saw that, and yeah, you've got to report quotes, exact. But again, I'll say something I don't say very often in defence of Medvedev. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with the actual bit he quoted, anyway. <laughs> like, he was, you know, he was, if even if that was the quote, he was right in what he said. He was, he was beating the doubt. He was a better player that day, and I think he would have. He, 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 I actually think he would have beaten him. And if he'd have beaten him, I think he'd have been favourite to win the tournament. So. I don't get, you know, this is one thing like we, I don't get who was upset by that other than weirdos who have, you know, Nadal posters up still.
3: Yeah, I, I was going to say similar. I mean, that that first quote for me was more accurate than the second one rather than kind of...
1: <laughs> Even though it wasn't verbatim, yeah.
3: Yeah, like he definitely, i said that at the time, I, I thought he was going to go on and win that match. And, you know, Zverev may not be my favourite player on the tour, but he was desperately unlucky that day you know that was a really horrible moment when he was playing some of the best tennis of his entire career and Mm. you know if he can get back to that level he can definitely win the french open in the future
1: albeit i should say because i was in the stadium that it was so horrifically humid they had shut it was a humid night anyway they'd shut the roof that do you remember Nadal wasn't keeping the ball in his pocket for second serve because he was so wet through that the ball was just getting soaked in his pocket. So it wasn't mi- night, was it? Yeah, was it, was. It, was was a, it? it was. It was late-ish. It wasn't the night match, but it was like 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening, right, I think, okay, when it happened. Yeah. Maybe yeah. even a bit later, actually. Yeah, I remember I was it, at
2: Surbiton. That's, I remember I was at Surbiton, the club, when yeah. it was on. So I must have been watching the grass court today. We went late there a few times. Yeah.
1: Um, but it was so humid, and it was like two and a half hours for... Less than two sets because the balls were so fluffed up. It was, it was a weird night, and not. I wasn't thankful for the injury, but I was sort of like tertiary uh, thankful for the fact that it was over, rather than because it was looking like it was going to be a six-hour five-setter at one point. And maybe Alexander Zverev would have won it, and maybe he would have won the French Open. Uh, Claire Hannon says, have we underestimated Andre Rublev and his ceiling? Is Novak's shaky clay court start? due to rustiness, a possible elbow injury, or indicative of something more serious. Ne- neatly brings us on to Monte Carlo, where Rublev did indeed win his first Masters 1000 title. In the words of Stefano Tsitsipas, he deserves it. He is a good kid. Um, also in the words of Stefano Tsitsipas, a clay court in the US is like a unicorn on a skateboard. No, I don't know either. Um, let- let's start with Rublev, because he's won the title and it's taken us an hour and a bit to... To mention him, um, I I think, and I I didn't predict that he would win Monte Carlo, but I think I've been quietly sort of driving a small bandwagon with Andre Rublev's name on it for the last couple of months, George, and I think it's had limited enthusiasm from other members of the podcast. <laughs> well,
3: yeah, I mean he's done very well this week. He's he's had some good results he's played some good stuff but he he's not bad on any surface he's capable of winning you know multiple titles this is obviously his first masters and well done to him doesn't particularly change my perspective on where i see andre rublev going to win the french open later this month you know I'd give him less of a chance than medvedev who as you know doesn't have many percentage points at my end let's not um, get back into your
1: maths mate we haven't got time <laughs>
3: Um, but, you know, he's 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 picked up, you know, he's he stuck in that match with Rune quite well. You know, I think Rune is someone who potentially could put themselves in the frame to win the French Open over the next few years. Um, probably more so than Andre Rublev to be honest. Um, but yeah, he's done well. He's, he's a nice enough guy. He's worked hard. He goes about his business relatively quietly apart from when he's Punching his strings, weirdly. Um, so.
1: I mean, I just think he... I think he's a really nice guy. That that documentary that him and uh, Daria Kasatkina did, kind of, they both train in Barcelona and at uh, the Sanchez, and uh, they did a piece with a Russian YouTuber. It, it, the big news line from which was Kasatkina kind of coming out um, as being in a relationship as a woman, but Rublev was in it as well, and he talked really beautifully about um, kind of, you know, life, the universe, and everything... He's in a boy band he loves one direction like he's I just think he's a, a sort of he's not what people would expect when you say he's the Russian number one or is he number two again I can't quite remember. Um, I don't think he's what people would would expect at all and he's slightly less mean to himself on the court now which is an improvement because as you say he's usually extremely mean to himself. And actually, I'll I give you some stats, Calvin, because I know you're going to say you don't think he's going to win a Grand Slam, but now that he's won a Masters, he's just about won everything else because he's won the ATP Cup, he's won the Lever Cup, he's won the Davis Cup, he's won 250s, he's won 500s, he's won the Olympic gold medal, and now he's won a Masters 1000 title. The one thing he's never won is a Grand Slam quarterfinal, but, you know, not everyone blooms immediately.
2: He's won an Olympic gold in doubles, hasn't he? Mixed doubles, yeah. Yeah, come on. Like, come on. <laughs> I I, like, I thought
1: you, of all people, as a doubles coach these days yeah, would be behind
2: that. No, You can't like count that as he's won an Olympic gold medal. Like, <laughs> uh, like, like saying Jamie Murray's won Wimbledon. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but um, no, yeah, I, I I think he's a very good player. I, I, I don't think it's impossible that he wins a slam. I think somebody else would have to take care of the other players. <laughs> uh, the big,
1: the big names. i know what you yeah. mean but that was a very funny way yeah. of saying it yeah
2: um i'd have him as the best of if you know if the top four or five players didn't exist i'd have him as probably the most likely to win a tournament yeah um the best of the in, in that yeah um i uh, i'm glad he's won one i mean he, he i think he's he comes across as a great great lad um I think he's he's grown up a lot. I think that maybe wasn't always the case, but that's fine. Um, people mature, you know. We shouldn't judge people on what they're like when they're seventeen. Mm. Um, and you know, he seems to be he's he's been vocal about the war and that kind of thing. Um, he's quite funny when you see him interviewed. He had the he had the sort of comments last year, I think, at Miami about how he wanted to go and see. Was it the Miami Heat, and he kept getting told there's no tickets available, and he kept seeing the players getting tickets? And it was and the U.S. He Open. Like, he couldn't. I he, couldn't get, I was. he couldn't get.
1: Yeah. He couldn't get Madison Square Garden tickets. I think for One Direction, and he was like, "Yeah, everyone yeah. else seems to go, and I can't get it." Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, and I think you know, I, I don't want to bring it. I briefly, want to bring it back onto the Ukraine Russia situation. I think this is one of the things that we forget when when we say that russian players shouldn't be allowed in the tournaments and that kind of thing is that people forget that they are people as well mm-hmm. they're not you know that they most of them are really good people like not you know they're nice people they've got no airs and graces they don't agree with the war and that kind of thing they don't agree with what what their leaders doing and to just dismiss them and go they shouldn't be allowed in they have why you know they they they're just people as well they're people just trying to earn a living like why why do we have this right to go they're not allowed in but these people are and i'd seen just now that um actually i don't know whether it was earlier on today or yesterday that um in the on the in stuttgart a couple of russian players had beaten a ukrainian and a pole i think maybe and the ukrainian just refused to shake hands just what off the court now I'd, i i get you know it's complex i get it but you know it's I, I'm i not sure I'm on board with this kind of thing now um, I don't know how we go about it but it's getting a little bit much and it's getting to the, the, the stage of where we're, we're making we're demonising just Russian people for the, something that their nutter president has done and I, I'm not really on board with that um, with the route that we're going there
3: I-, I was going to come in on a lot less of an in- a sentimental point <laughs> 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 I was going to jokingly uh, you know, not not just to gloss over your excellently made points there Calvin but I was enjoying the idea of you kind of setting up a redemption arc for Holger Rune there by saying you're not judging someone by what they were like at 17 so I look forward <laughs> in 8 years to you being a Holger Rune super fan and <laughs> that will be um, a glorious comeback you know. or something.
2: well you never know you never know <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll say this are we, we going to get on to Roon now well uh,
1: Holger Rune, uh made it through to the final of uh, the uh, the Monte Carlo Masters he's beaten 7-5 2-6 5-7 all the other way around 5-7 6-2 7-5 by Andre Rublev uh, he beat Daniil Medvedev Yannick Sinner and Dominic Team along the way which okay not the Dominic Team of, of days of yore but nevertheless an impressive collection of names you got a walk over against Matteo Berrettini incidentally who um, has had a recurrence of his abdominal injury which is worrying with uh, with the two biggest slams probably for him coming up I don't know maybe people might disagree on that but anyway um, concerning stuff nevertheless but yeah Holgerun made it to the final uh, lost in three sets looked pretty I would say jaded I noted that he finished I think about 11 p.m. the previous night against Yannick Sinner Someone I noted saw him liking tweets at half three or four in the morning, um, which like okay, it might not have been him, might have been his team doing stuff. I don't know, but you know, suggests he might not have had a huge amount of sleep before the final, which might explain it. But Calvin, how does this this sit as a, a set of performances? Because I mean, he's having a pretty decent year overall.
2: I mean, he's a good tennis player. You can't get away from that. He's an excellent tennis player, a legitimate top ten, top ten in the world tennis player now. I'd say. Um, and he played very well throughout the tournament. Um, I didn't see what happened with Sinner. I know Sinner wasn't happy. You've got to go some to piss Yannick Sinner off,
0: um, <laughs>
2: to be fair. Um, I watched him yesterday, and I put it Look, it's one of those, isn't it? I I do think he's a dickhead. I don't think there's, there's no getting around that. But in fairness, I, I put the match on yesterday just because I really wanted Rublev to beat him so you can say i tuned in you know he puts he gets people to to watch it I, i'm i can take that um but i want people to beat him just because i do think he's a dick and <laughs> like he, i mean his behavior at the end and this is what i'm talking about with the umpires he should have got a code value. i thought he'd whack two ball three balls out of the um stadium, it turns out it was just two, the the TV coverage showed a repeat of the first one, but he basically I don't know whether anyone saw it, he, he, he whacked a ball out of the stadium, then asked for another ball immediately from the ball kid, and then he just whacked that one out as well <laughs> um, and the
1: I really uh, respect uh, that I
2: respect. for doing this. that though, for doing that is a code violation, he should have got a code violation, he should have got another he should have got a point penalty for the second one as well, but the umpire was a bit slack on that and she just gave him one code violation now if you'd have done that, if you'd have whacked another one out a point later, you'd have got a point penalty.
1: Yeah. I mean got, that he... that is something that umpires do where it's like they don't immediately give the code violation because they don't want to, they don't want to give multiple codes for a multi part yeah. incident. Like you'll see you'll see when someone's smashing a racket or when they've sworn at the umpire, you'll see them just kind of let I was talking to someone about this the other day and they're like you just have to count to 10 in your head and let them get it out because you don't want to give them a point penalty game penalty like back to back.
2: I get that. And I think the thing is with Rune as well is that, you know, we'll get people going, oh, you know, what about McEnroe? You know, they'll, they'll I know that some of Alice's will be in, in going like, you know, well, you know, you love McEnroe and, you know, he, he used to behave like this. But the thing with McEnroe is he was a compelling person, really compelling personality. I don't think Olga Rune's compelling at all. He just comes across as a bit of a dick all <laughs> the time. Um, and he's, you know... He's, he's got like people around him as well, like a load of arse sniffers around him who I don't really have any respect for at all. And I think they just they just work into it and like I just I just don't like the kid if I'm honest.
3: Um yeah, I was just just kind of imagining then if like you took took the literal code violations when bublik smashed six rackets. Yeah, well, that's exactly the, <laughs> the thing I was thinking about. Also, <laughs> like when when banned for the next two matches. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, they should. They should. If if we got the code violations in, to like if we you know we always say we I guess we say it in football all the time that like if players do this. Imagine the kids watching it; they'll think that they can do it. Right. You should be getting a fair amount of. You know, you should be getting something serious for smashing six rackets. Yeah. If kids are coming out and start doing that, then you've then got, you know, it's going to cost parents a whole lot of money. And yeah. whacking balls out, that's that's something kids do do. Hmm. And, and they start, you know, if we start that business of doing that kind of thing, then we've got an issue there. And again, it's always just stroppiness about it. it it's like just a full on stroppiness from Rune that he's just not getting his own way all the time and it, it's just the blame's aimed at anybody but himself all the time and I, I yeah you know.
3: just on the subject of racket smashing I mean the Djokovic one I watched in awe this week that was a technical break of magnificence
1: I mean as as you always say George Novak Djokovic is the most proficient racket smasher <laughs> that there is like he, there is no one better at smashing rackets than
0: him i used to be
3: vavrinka that. over the knee that was pretty cool but yeah then. but this was this was a, a new technical ko of a racket that really I, I was i was wowed i was like
2: the Vavrinka one, the, the one over the knee is is quite something because i know that racket because <laughs> i played the onyx as well that is a hard racket to break on concrete
0: <laughs> <laughs> like
2: that is that is solid in case people don't know some of the rackets are hollow um and some of them are solid that is a solid graphite racket that he snapped over his knee. That that takes some doing.
1: Um, yeah, just uh, on the, the frostiness between them, it was a very cold handshake and a week of cold handshakes in Monte Carlo. Uh, the whole match was pretty... Um, well, it was an exciting match and there, there was a decent crowd in. Obviously, lots of Italians in Monte Carlo. It's not far away from the Italian border at all. Uh, and Holgerun was very much playing the villain and... You know, playing to the crowd. Um, Yannick was asked about it afterwards, and perhaps predictably said, "I don't want to comment because, as Calvin points out, he's pretty hard to rile up, and I think regains his temper very quickly."
3: I thought, like I know I can see what Calvin means about Rune being a a dick, but I also do kind of hope this summer we get a bit of a run out of him at Wimbledon because I think people will be very interested to kind of just hate this guy <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it is something that would be good for tennis in the sense that you know you're right I, I, I do question... to about every match it's like oh god are they gonna are they gonna kind of scrap with each other he seems so unpopular right now doesn't seem to give that much of a crap about I do how popular question... he is that it could do be interesting question a little while. bit
2: i question a little bit about it, though, how much longevity there is in it because there's no it's not um There's no depth to it. Like I said, it's not McEnroe who you thought... McEnroe was quite unique because it was always kind of aimed at the umpires. The thing with McEnroe as well was he was usually right
0: on the (laughs) arguments he had with the
2: umpires, so he got a lot of sympathy there. But he also had this contrast of the way that he played was just so artistic um, that he'd go absolutely nuts and there'd be this fury and then he'd he'd sort of have this theatre of the serve and come in with a, a swinger and then a lovely drop shot and it was the contrast of it was what made it and there was this depth of character who's interesting people wanted to hear him interviewed and and that kind of thing whereas rune i think people you know it's like how much longevity is there in this? god this guy's just a bit of a twat right like, i i i i think
3: just the right tournament as well for it to happen is good like you know curiosity last year it was a great example of people at wimbledon that people were interested in that All of a sudden you know that was a, yeah. a great time for them to have that spat if that happens in monte carlo it probably gets pressed the car i mean is kirios so maybe not so much but i think just happening at an event like wimbledon particularly as kind of british
2: people but even with kirios though you've that, got like... with kirios and i'm no fan of kirios but you've got this like <laughs> variation in the way that he plays as well in mm. that he's got these this sort of this and if rune doesn't have that i think rune's an excellent tennis player i think he's a better tennis player than nick kirios but it's pretty he hits the ball he just hits the ball hard mm. that's the thing isn't it you know it's, it's pretty one-dimensional he hits it hard and he doesn't have a particular look about him. He looks pretty bog standard. Um And he's not also... curious as much as I find curious. I do think he's just a knob. But he is funny as well. Like, you hear him talk. He's got that kind of, like... I don't want to give credit to these two idiots, but, like, Donald Trump and, and Boris Johnson can be quite... They can be quite funny. Are you you're watching I mean... them?
1: What I mean, thirty seconds in which Calvin has complimented, <laughs> like a whole episode, he's complimented Alexander Zverev, Nick Kyrgios, Donald Trump, and Boris Johnson.
2: <laughs> but yeah, but you know that, but just—it's just not funny. Like when you watch him, he's just not funny, is he? He's never said anything funny.
1: I'm okay with it. I'm. I'm. I. We've got a funny guy. You know, it's like it's like a boy band. You you need all the different parts, and you need a Hogaroon. i
2: um... I mean, he's, yeah, but I, I do not listen. I do think that what I'm saying is the longevity in it. I don't think at at Wimbledon he's just going to keep being able to come out and roll the, you know, he's just a bit of a bell end out, and people tune in to watch it. I think you're going to need a bit more than that.
1: All right. Well, fingers crossed for Holger Rune develops some sort of stand up act.
2: Um... He's never won a match at Wimbledon, by the way. It has won. I think he will. Oh, good. I think he will. I could see him being quite decent at Wimbledon, to be fair. Yeah. He um, gets the movement, yeah. He moves pretty well. He hits it hard and flat. I think that um, I think we'll see him do okay at Wimbledon. We
1: look do, forward do
3: you give to him it. a better chance of winning the French than Medvedev? Not to kind of labor this point too. Uh, like, he feels no. in good shape and he's good on Clay Rude. Like...
2: Yeah, no, I'd, I'd have him similar. I'd still make Medvedev slightly more likely to win it.
1: Yeah. I I would probably. Just about lean that way as well,
3: but um... I, th- I think I'd give Rune more of a chance. Bizarrely, at the minute, just... what would you give him, George? Twenty-five <laughs> your... <I> percent? <laughs> definitely not that
2: high. Probably like three percent. Great, great.
1: Can't wait to see the four different winners of the French Open. This.
2: Wait a year. minute, right? I've got to get into this again now, just because oh, this no. is not going to be right. So you're giving him what? How much percent? Rishi
1: Sunak is turning I mean, you get, You're
2: giving Runa three percent, you're giving Medvedev you can have three. I realise right, I had five percent more to play with. Yeah, so you're you you giving Medvedev two. You're giving Medvedev yeah. two. So you're yeah. giving Yannick Sinner zero chance of winning the franchise. No, yeah, you can have one percent. No, you've used up all your hundred percent. You've used all your hundred percent up. No, no you have. Two, Medvedev
3: you have.
1: was included in my original two. We're, we're gonna have were to get five, your no. we're gonna have I am gonna have to only accept this on on paper.
3: I had I said there were five percent for the rest of the draw. And that took me to ninety five percent. So I'm giving three to Medvedev no, Tuesday. Yeah. I've got five percent left. Sidna can have that's, one. Sisabas can have one, Zverev can have one, and everyone else medvedev can be a combined. Medvedev was percent. Def- medvedev
2: was definitely in your five percent that was left. Like Ding ding! No, you
3: the... <laughs> I'm waving I'm
1: waving off this uh, this this percentage <laughs> fight. George, you're banned from using the word percent. Uh, otherwise, we're never going to get this podcast. Or I'll fish. just have to
3: pre-plan it next time. I think. We've,
1: ne- we've barely even spoken about Novak Djokovic, which is pretty incredible. Um, he lost in Monte Carlo this week to Lorenzo Mazzetti, who I pointed out a couple of weeks yeah, was ago was, was due a good season. I, I mean, the point at which I said that he hadn't won for four months. So, yeah. uh, but he did. I mean, he came into that Djokovic match, by the way, having won 18 games in a row because he double-bageled Luca Nardi, and I think he also finished his last match with a bagel. So um, we should have seen it coming. Novak Djokovic gave a very grumpy press conference afterwards. He was asked six questions, barely strung together a sentence in answer to any of them, which is obviously he's entitled to do, but um, he wasn't in a good mood to say the least. George Rust, or actually to to use Claire Hannan's question again, Rustiness, a possible elbow issue, or indicative of something more serious?
3: Uh, Well, I think we said last week that Monte Carlo's often been a bit of a weird tournament for Djokovic. Um, And I don't think he's particularly helped by having quite a long break away. Um, You know, you do kind of lose that match sharpness. Yeah, Mazzetti's a good player as well. I mean, Novak didn't want to be at all complimentary to him after the match, um, which is. Kinda of quite rare for Novak sometimes. He, I'm know, not sure he that's
1: be... I'm not sure that's quite the case. Like I, I I read it as he kept saying well done to him. I read it as actually that Novak doesn't like talking about injuries for various reasons, as much when he's lost because he doesn't want to, I think, detract too much mm-hmm. and pull out too much of an excuse. So he was like, Look, I just don't want to talk at all because I'm just gonna blame the injury and I don't want to blame the injury.
3: Hmm. No, yeah, I think, I think so. This, this, no, I think this was. I, I think he was seriously, seriously pissed off with this match. Um, I've seen him in quite a few kind of exit interviews before, and he, this was one of the higher ones on the scale I've seen for a while. So you know, it might be because of the injury, but if 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 Calvin believes there's an injury or not, we'll see. Um, Calvin
1: definitely doesn't believe there's an injury. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but yeah, I, look, I'm, I'm not too worried. I mean, he's still probably my favourite. For the French Open until Nadal comes out and just rolls everyone in Rome or something, um, so yeah, it's, it's not not too much of a panic. But it, it, so let's let's go rust anyway to answer all, all questions, right. I think
1: Calvin, which, which do you prefer, rust elbow or uh, a significant issue?
2: Um, nah, I'm I'm kind of semi joking. He might have a niggle with the elbow. Um, I know It's not like the hamstring where I just didn't believe him at all. Um, because I think that would be impossible for him to do what he did uh, with the hamstring injury. Um, I think it's rust. Yeah, he's not played very much. Mm. Well, I By mean, his he's, own not, he's
1: not. Yeah, he's not played competitively for for several months, and 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 also the conditions. Um, you know, it was very windy. It was late. There was a rain delay. You know, I think probably if you're coming off not much match practice. Um, that's maybe one of the worst kind of sets of conditions. I mean, to be fair, credit to Lorenzo Mazzetti, who did have that rain delay to think about it, and he's obviously got scar tissue from Roland Garros when he was two sets up against Djokovic and didn't finish it off, so um, credit where credit's due, and and he's, again, I, I didn't say his name without thinking about it last week, I really do think he's got a game and he's, in, he's back into the top 20 in the world, like Despite having barely won a match for the last six months,
3: you you know if that was a, a five set match this time that the score in the fourth set is six one Djokovic <laughs> 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 six love I mean that would just be classic Novak <laughs>
1: yeah yeah almost certainly but uh, yeah we'll we'll talk more about Djokovic in other episodes so maybe it's no harm just talking about him briefly uh, today finally we should talk about some women's tennis because there was some last week um, a few decent efforts in the Billie Jean King Cup uh although that feels a bit like saying lots of the games went to juice uh and i know calvin loves it when we use that excuse but there were a lot of tie breaks calvin a lot of tie breaks uh, <laughs> but gb did go down 3-1 to france in coventry in the Billie jean king cup qualifier um caroline garcia beating katie bolter in the first match Alize corne then beating harriet dart and then garcia beating dart on Saturday morning. Uh, we did win the doubles, Barnett and Nichols beating Miladinovic and Burrell. So that's something, although pretty limited um sucker there. As Calvin pointed out last week, Britain without their number one player in Raducanu, uh who was preparing for Stuttgart, and without their number two player, Jody Burridge, um, Othavong defended her selection before the tie by saying that she had to make her decision more than a month ago um, at which point Jodie hadn't just won a tournament but I'm fairly sure she was still potentially British number two at that point but uh, anyway her time will come is what she said um, and that she knows Jodie was disappointed not to be there Calvin I I found myself thinking I went up to Coventry for the press day today on Thursday and looking at it and you know and I don't mean this is disrespect to anyone on the team but it does feel a bit like there's a real dearth of talent in British women's tennis at the moment.
2: Um, yeah, um, there is, I would say. Um, I also don't like the rhetoric that goes around that, that Billie Jean King Cup team now. It's I'd seen before it that a few of the players or a couple of players were raving about how, how last time out it was unbelievable and it was unreal and it was epic and the team were just unreal. And it's like we won one match. One match out three, and like you know, you could go. Oh, you know, they were close and they battled so well. Like, what are we doing here? Are we trying to win tennis matches or not? Like, or are we just? I don't want you know. I don't want to be dismissive because I know all the players on that team and I I do like them. I think they're all good people. I know Anne. I think she's you know I'm, I'm friends with Anne. Um, but I I think it was a mistake not picking Jodie Burridge for a couple of reasons. I think you've got to be picking your best team, and I think she, you know you've got to that's what the ranking is also in terms of styles of play it offered something else because basically we were going to have to get one one of the number twos was going to have to be what one of the players was going to have to be um Camilla Georgie at least one of them to hey, get
1: uh Elisa uh, Corne, 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 Corne sorry, not, not
2: Camilla Georgie yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah because um, yeah, you know Garcia was going to be the favorite against anybody and um I I mean you can say that Bolter took a close, but I watched the match, it, it it wasn't that close. The third set was rubbish from both players, and then Garcia just ended up turning it up a notch. Um I think there was a spirit there was a period um there's a period of five where there were five games in the third set that each one had at least one double fault in it, mm. which was just rubbish. Um but also in de- what I was gonna say there was in terms of styles of play of what you're gonna get against Corney in the If you're going to pick Harriet Dart, that's fair enough. Um, And I'm not saying you shouldn't pick any of these players. I don't captain the team. But if you're going to pick Harriet Dart, that's fair enough. But then I don't get the point in picking Heather Watson as well, and vice versa, because you're basically just getting the same player. You're getting a a solid baseline player who's going to run and make a lot of balls. I don't get why you wouldn't pick a different style of player in what Jodie Burridge would be. He was a bit more aggressive. You can have a swing. And maybe hit some winners and catch fire and, and win a match but when you've seen what what georgie had done to um uh to harriet a oh,
1: georgie again no
2: jesus christ <laughs> they look alike don't they um uh, a bit no no do they not right no <laughs> um right um Cornet, then Corne. um <laughs> yeah, shocker there um uh, yeah corney it's like well i don't get what you thought you were going to get the next day when you're then going to put Bolter up against her. It's, I I just have had a different... I'm not sure how to pick the two doubles players either, if I'm honest. Like, the doubles... It's different in, in Billie Jean King Cup to Fed Cup in that you only get to the doubles if you can split the singles. So it's not as... If it was the same yeah. format as Davis Cup, then I would have picked the two doubles girls. But I can't see the point in picking the two doubles girls where... It's unlikely you're going to get to play them in a live rubber. Looking at the rankings and that kind of thing. Yeah, but I do think it needs a it needs a bit of a shake up. That sort of Fed Cup stroke, Billie Jean King Cup team. It feels like it's the same players, and they're all a bit comfortable. And what what I find most disappointing is they're all comfortable losing close matches and raving about it on social media. And the LTA don't help in that either. And their social media team, it's all a bit like I oh, remember how great it was, and I guarantee you i I guarantee you that I mean we'll probably still play because we'll pay a load of money for to get one of the um the venues for the finals, hmm. I imagine we'll do it, and I guarantee you if that happens in November is it
1: uh so, yeah, November yeah,
2: in November, the lta social media team will be putting videos out about how amazing it was in Coventry, what a great team spirit we had. remember how how great Coventry was, and it's how like we got hammered like hammered again like, <laughs> and when they won it as well and and when they won it in they won the match who did they beat they beat, oh they won they got through because they they won the doubles against yeah. um Kazakhstan was it Kazakhstan
1: I'm trying to remember which way around it was now Kazakhstan or Spain uh yeah, I can't, yeah, can't yeah. remember yeah, yeah it's yeah. Kazakhstan
2: yeah they won the doubles against that but that's because Kazakhstan had an absolute stinker with their double selection. Mm. Like they didn't put their two best doubles players on the court, yeah, and didn't pick her back in yeah, um, and you know we kind of fluked that one a little bit, and I, I yeah, I think it needs it needs a shake up. That I don't want to see us coming out. I don't think we will, but I don't want to see us coming out um, in November when I do think we'll probably host one of the the places because that's kind of what we do. Um, I don't want to see just coming out with the same team and going, oh yeah, it's such a great team spirit.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think there would be a lot of um, merit in picking not a rogue team, but yeah, throwing you know, throwing a bit of a bit of spice into into that team. Um, you know, some some people who had some some grit. I think you're right. I, I I think they do seem a bit happy with having lost close matches, and that I that really bothers me. Like, I, I think. There's a lot, we're a Grand Slam nation, we're extremely lucky to have a Grand Slam in this country. It provides an absolute heap of money, like 40, 50, 60 million pounds a year. Money that like most countries would kill for in terms of funding. And the fact that we've got one top 100 woman, you know, great, she won a Grand Slam, brilliant. But that was one thing that happened. And we haven't got anywhere near the strength in depth. I don't know what the Czech budget for tennis is. But I bet you it's not 40 million quid a year or whatever it is. And look how many women they've got in the top 100. Now, I'm not saying that we should be like the Czech Republic or Checher, I believe, um, overnight. But it is pretty worrying. They've got 10 women in the top 100. I mean, Britain's never had 10 women in the top 100. I'd be amazed if we ever had five. So, I don't know. There's... A finger needs to be pulled out on something. And I think as Calvin says, to fix a problem you've got to recognise one. And I don't think at the moment there's necessarily a problem recognised. In my opinion. Sorry. Ram to clock. It's a happy note to finish on. Uh well yeah. I we mean, haven't we this, haven't even this, to it, go on.
3: I was just gonna say what I mean one thing of defence is we gave them zero chance of winning this before the match. <laughs> <laughs> and
2: they've lost. So I, I find it hard to like really like dump on think, them for I like. Don't, uh... I don't think it's zero chance though, George. I mean, Corne is not an unbelievable player. It's not someone who you look at and you go, "Oh, we're not going to win any matches there." If you're in in a position that you know, if you if you're an underdog in a tie, and the second player of the other team is Cornet, I think you've you've got to think, you know, we have fancy this.
1: Yeah, especially indoors. I don't feel like indoors is yeah. her best surface by any stretch
2: but, of the imagination. But just, just, just
3: to flip it on its head, if you looked at our team and you saw Harriet Darts, the second player, you'd bat yourself to win that nine times out of 10 other, other yeah, top, but that's, like, that's top what, nations, right? That's like, how sport Corne's works. Won 11, Corne's won 11 WTA singles titles, you know, comparing her to Harriet Dart, who has done well to win kind of two matches at a WTA event.
2: He's also but quite that's, harsh, when, right? that's when you're going to come in with team selection and that kind of thing, then and go yeah, yeah, and exactly. Who's, yeah, who's I the, think that who's the player who's in form? Let's get a player. I don't think Corny's in particular great form, but
3: no. but she but she also beats Fiontek last year, and I, I wouldn't back any of our players to lay a glove on Fiontek, and that includes Emma Raducanu. You know, she is capable of that kind of yeah. that high level, um, which I don't think our players are, and that that's about bit I find kind hardest hardest here. Is like I agree the culture's not great, but I just don't think the players are that great, but so that, that's the Two ways around it, but like, they're yeah, not. But then, Radicalu's how you, not playing.
2: How you pull through those in sport, how you win matches when you're an underdog, is you do it with desire and you force it through through sheer willpower and that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm not sure. we like to talk about how much we do that without actually doing it a whole lot in the in the yeah. Fed Fed Stroke Billie Jean King Cup team.
1: Mm. I
0: mean, there was a
3: time with the men's team where it was like this as well, wasn't there? Really, where it was just you know years of being kind of lower actually lose the Murray yeah, we always up, had a few but...
2: like even before Murray you know we were looking at Rosensky and Hemman and a stretch mm. in there
1: what was it when we nearly went down into this word uh, group two and we've yeah, been yeah. like that that's like Africa Europe. yeah that's the kind of era i was talking about yeah, yeah, yeah but this when, has been
3: going on like, a while for the women's now isn't it really I mean it's been it's been years since you I genuinely it don't is. go into many matches thinking it is. They're it going is, win George.
2: It. I I agree with you, but the thing, what, what like I say, what winds me up is when 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 James there references that you didn't have like whoever was in the team, whoever was in the men's team back then, you didn't have them like tweeting all the time going, "Oh, give into going, "Oh, it's just epic." The last time we played, it was an unreal effort. Mm. It was, um, the the guys played unbelievable stuff. You've mm. lost matches, yeah.
1: Win more. It's the answer. Yeah. Be win better. More be better um, <laughs> and if their... you are not better don't smile about it no one's
2: <laughs> everything.
3: I've,
2: I've not heard anyone come, I've not heard anyone I've not heard anyone come out and say from the team to come out and say that was crap that's not good enough it needs to be better than that
1: yeah, yeah. it's it's true isn't it and and as George says we didn't expect them to do anything so um, yeah something something has to change I think and I, I'm yeah. not saying that's people or attitude or what but you can't possibly you know madness is definition of man is doing the same thing over and over again expecting different results and that does feel a bit like what they've done yeah i think that
3: that's a totally fair challenge from calvin you know these players have had the three or four run year run at this where the best results have really come when conta was playing you put Radicano in that team you give it a 15 percent better chance of having much better or 50 sorry no you're absolutely sorry no no more but um you know, if it Burridge, you know, there's absolutely an no argument. She's not had the chance to show she can do it, and the players there at the minute haven't done it over the last few years. Really, it, you know, the one they did do it was dressed up a little bit better than it was, and thanks to kind of the doubles um, players. So, yeah, it probably is worth a worth a little roll of the dice. But I guess you'd say putting radikanu in is is doing that, isn't it? You know, that's that suddenly feels a lot stronger if you put her back in as number one yeah. as well. So. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, fingers crossed. I mean, she says she wants to play the Olympics and to do that she's going to have to play another uh, Billie Jean King Cup tie in order to qualify. So we hopefully we'll see Raducanu either at the finals if we end up hosting it or um, next year in the uh, in the qualifier whoever we end up getting drawn against. Um, the WTA this week confirmed that they're going to host events in China again, uh, <laughs> which we've barely touched on. Uh, We might talk about it at length next week, but it it wasn't a surprising move. I have some thoughts on it. Um, We will, I think, discuss it next week. They say it's not about money. The reality is it is about money. Um, What another miserable note to end on. Yet another climb down by tennis in the face of political pressure. This is why
2: we always come third.
1: (laughs) We don't have a
3: culture of winning. That's the problem here. We right. need to make some changes, bringing that... Uh, there's someone playing really well on the outside tours that we need to get in, replace yeah. me, get me out. I've got a culture of losing.
1: Miles, Miles David is just lining up your spot. <laughs> I know his voice is much more popular than yours is. Absolutely, um, yeah. That's all we've got time for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, please do leave us a rating, a review, follow us on social media, and most importantly, come back next week.
0: Five, four, three, two, one... Zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?